are all so different, aren't we? I mean, look around. No, you can really do that. Just look around for a minute. We're a different box of crayons. We've got different talents, different genders, different marital status, different hair and eye colors, different years we were born, different fears and joys that we experience, different ways we respond to prosperity and adversity, even different testimonies of how we became a Christian. But with all our differences, we are actually more alike than I think we admit. Underneath the hoods of our lives, we all have some common life experiences. You might even call them engines under the hood that excites us and keeps us going on in life to one degree or another. Uh, That is purpose, success, and satisfaction. Purpose, success, and satisfaction. Purpose. We all want to have purpose or meaning with what we're doing in our lives. We want to have some kind of significance while we're here. We want to know that we know that we aren't some pointless particle of randomness in the universe. Rather, we want to fulfill whatever unique and special reason that we were given life by our creator God. And then there's success. We want to be successful. We want to be a winner, an overcomer, a victor with whatever we put our time and energy to. Now, for some of us, that means being in first place. And if you're not in first place, you're in last place in your mind. But probably for most of us, success is simply doing our best and hoping that we will receive some kind of tangible reward for our labors. And then there's satisfaction. We want to feel a sweet gratification that comes with enjoying the best that life has to offer. Whether it's the satisfaction of hard work and receiving the A on your report card at the end of a semester, or the satisfaction of a fun and relaxing vacation after a long season of raising a busy family, or working overtime in your job. Uh, Really, another way to put it, we enjoy pleasure. Pleasure is what makes us smile. It's what, it what reminds us that our God is a God of joy and righteous delights. It reminds us that the God we've been worshiping this morning is a joyful, gift-giving God. David made that pretty clear in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or consider Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. 
and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And then there's that one psalm, often taken out of context, but if you read it in context, it's still sweet. Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's why we loathe catching the FOMO disease. You know what a FOMO disease is, right? The acronym F-O-M-O. It's that depressing and nagging emptiness. It's the fear of missing out. It's the thought of someone somewhere enjoying something and being happy with their lives and you ain't getting it. It's that rich and tasty food that someone else is enjoying. The marital romance that you long for that you don't have. The welcoming of a new child. Or seeing that fat check deposited in your bank account that shouts a job well done. The pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness is natural to the human experience because our good creator instilled that in us. In his book, The Story of Everything, author Jared Wilson once recounts a time in his life where he had a conversation with himself in his own heart about this very thing. He began to consider purpose, success, and satisfaction. He, he wanted to find deeper meaning to life. And in an unusual and everyday experience, it came to a head for him. He writes, I was roasting in bumper-to-bumper traffic on FM 1960 in Houston, Texas, one blazingly hot afternoon when I realized that I was an alien. The thought struck me as both out of nowhere and a long time coming, like an ungraspable part of my brain had suddenly been dislodged. I realized with stunning clarity, I don't belong here. Now, I was born in Texas, and save for three years of childhood spent in New Mexico, I grew up in Texas. But I never felt quite at home in Texas. And yet the problem I had just found the solution to in the muggy traffic trap was not exactly where I lived. It was more about the circumstances and the processing of them. It was about the thick traffic, sure. It was about the humid air, yes. It was a lot about the fact that at the time I was working three jobs and going to college. But it was mostly about the fact that I had no idea of what any of this displacement meant. I was not just an alien in my culture. I was an alien in my own life. This is what I mean. In all my routine, daily facing the grind of work, traffic, school, traffic, work, Traffic, work. I felt completely lost. Like the proverbial hamster on a wheel. In that crucial moment of traffic jam clarity, I realized life was happening to me. 
and I had no clue what I was supposed to be working toward. It wasn't so much that I wanted to get out of Houston, well, that was part of it. It was more that I wanted to know that whatever I was doing, wherever I was doing it, actually mattered. I wasn't thinking primarily of being transported out of my life. I was thinking how great it might be to have some kind of meaning being transported into my life. I think this is largely true for everybody. Most of us can deal with less than dream jobs and staying put in one place for a long time if we can only get the sense that there is something important, fulfilling, and eternal about the ordinary stuff we do in our lives. Because isn't that what life normally is? Ordinary? Not many of us are international adventurers or ninja warriors. Got any ninja warriors out here? Katie? All right. Most of us are just regular kinds of people. Most of our days look pretty much the same. Every now and then something out of the ordinary happens, both good things and bad things. They excite us or disrupt us or both. We usually ponder the big questions of life in those extraordinary moments at weddings and funerals, at the birth of a child or the loss of a job, when we win the lotto or have to declare bankruptcy. But hardly anyone is contemplating the meaning of life over their bowl of shredded wheat. Friends, over the last couple of weeks, we've been in a mini-series on Sunday morning as we've been trying to think biblically about our lives and ministry together walking forward. We began this little mini-series by looking at a prayer, a prayer by the Apostle Paul, a prayer for a new year, asking that we might be filled from Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14. And we learned that the first and vital priority of our life is that we should grow in our knowledge of God, in all spiritual wisdom, in understanding. Uh, God's wisdom helps us love God. It teaches us what it means to please God. And God's wisdom strengthens us in how to endure with difficult people and with difficult trials that we'll have to face. And, and we even learn that sweet gem that all this is possible because of the grace we've already received in Christ. Then last week we were in Psalm 90 together, which was penned by Moses. This prayer by Moses, he was called the man of God, as you remember from last week. It really was a sober meditation on how God, our creator, is from everlasting. But we as human beings are mortal. We just last for a brief time. We focused on at great length of how transient, how fleeting our lives are in contrast to the timelessness of God. We learn that we have a very brief time here on earth, and our lives are much like a dream, a mist, a flower. We soon wither, we vanish, and we die. But from that psalm, we learn that from knowing who our God is, 
and how time-bound and limited we are as human beings, it should drive us to cling to God's wisdom. It should drive us to cling to God's steadfast love. It should drive us to cling to God's power. And, and we saw this one verse, it's kind of the dynamite verse in Psalm 90 that we should be incorporating into our lives. Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now this morning, we're going to conclude this little mini-series by looking at the final two verses in one of the wisdom books found in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 322. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word. If you want to simplify life, it's helpful to know on the front end what is most important. If you want to know how you should view things and how I should view things like wisdom, work, wealth, marriage, children, pleasure, possessions, success, purpose, justice, evil, aging, and death. Just pick the category. If we want to know what's most important about those topics, we need the right perspective. Indeed, we need the best and the purest viewpoint of someone who actually knows the meaning of life. Someone who actually knows how to be satisfied in the midst of a complex and unfulfilling world. In short, we need God's perspective. And that's exactly what the end of Ecclesiastes is screaming to us. It is screaming to us this message. Only when we live life backwards can we truly live life with meaning and joy moving forward. Only when we live life backwards can we truly begin to live life with meaning and joy moving forward. Now, in other words, only when we view how everything's going to end like, in other words, we know how the end of the movie ends up. We, we skip the preview. We skip all the introductory stuff. We skip all the sappy, you know, turn and twist in the middle plots of the movie. No, let's just get to the very end. Tell me exactly how this thing's going to end. Friends, if you know how the end is of your life and of this world is going to be, it will give each one of us a richer fuller and clearer understanding about how we should live our lives right now. Now, you'll have to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes 
on your own time to get a fuller grasp of everything in this book. However, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm basically going to preach a sermon on the whole book of Ecclesiastes using the end as the main frame for the whole thing. So it is not going to be a verse by verse. It is not going to be looking at every verse in this book. That's for you to do on your own time. I'm giving you the 30,000-foot view, checking out some mountains and rivers along the way, and we're going to land and see why chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 simplifies how we should be living our life. So let me give you some flyover, introducing you to this book. This book has three major sections in it. A prologue, it's really an introduction, that's chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. A long autobiographical monologue, that's chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 12, verse 8. And then a very brief conclusion, or epilogue, chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Many have traditionally believed that the human author of this book is King Solomon. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. We're going to be flipping around a little bit today. Ecclesiastes 1, let's look at the very beginning. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. It begins this way. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The reference here to the son of David, it speaks to a descendant of David. Or it could be speaking about one who would inherit the throne of David as king. Now, of course, Solomon fits that bill, right? That was his boy. We know that from the dynasties in Kings and Chronicles. And then if you look at the overall emphasis in the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see a lot of kind of repetition with wisdom and wealth throughout the book. And we know from Solomon's life he was super wise and super wealthy. And that's why many people think this is Solomon. However, the vast majority of this book is written through the lens of a nameless person called the preacher in the ESV. Or if you've got the NIV, it's the teacher. In Hebrew, it's the word koheleth. Let's say that together now. Koheleth. That'll get some heads turning at lunch today. It means one who assembles others in order to address them. So this morning, as a pastor preacher, I am speaking to those who have assembled. I'm speaking to you God's word. I'm instructing you God's word to the assembly. That's, that's really what the Koheleth is speaking about. Solomon's name, though, is never mentioned in this book. There's a king. He's in Jerusalem. It's a lot of wisdom, a lot of wealth, but he's never mentioned in this book. So, and interestingly, what's going on in this book doesn't seem to match a lot of the things that went on in Solomon's, uh, his dynasty. So, Regardless, I'm just telling you up front, either way, whether it's Solomon, Solomon himself or another one who saw life through the eyes of Solomon, the divine author is still the same, God. Now, just to get a feel for who's in the room, raise your hand if you've read Ecclesiastes from start to finish. That's chapter 1-1 to chapter 12-14. Raise your hand really high. Don't be shy. Okay. Right, raise your hand if you've read this book in the last six months from start to finish. Louis right. Kay, 
Did you enjoy it or was it confusing? Okay, all right. It is confusing, yes, yes. All right, raise your hand if you've never read this book before. There's no need to lie. We're in a church. Tell the truth. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. I would encourage you, if you have never read the book of Ecclesiastes from start to finish, do that this week. If it's been more than six months, which is everyone but Lily Kate and maybe a few others, I would encourage you to read it this week. You know why? Because the book of Ecclesiastes is a sobering book to read. In fact, if you're not a Christian and you think the Bible is totally disconnected from real life, it's totally disconnected from pain and suffering and the humdrum of the same old thing every day, (laughs) open it up and read it this week. I think you will see that God's Word is reading you and the world you live in more than you can critique God. You'll actually find a lot of things in common with what the preacher says. And if you are a Christian and you're trying to help an agnostic friend or a pessimistic unbeliever who's just kind of done with religion, encourage them to read Ecclesiastes with you. I've actually seen this done, and most unbelievers, they'll laugh throughout the book because they know a lot of it is true, because this is what real life often feels like. Uh, Either way, throughout the book, Koheleth, or the preacher, is doing his best to take in all that life has to offer him. He doesn't want to have the FOMO. He wants to experience everything, the best of everything he can get his hands on in life. In fact, in chapter 1, he's searching for wisdom and knowledge as the chief ambition of his life. And then in chapter 2, this is where we can all really relate, I'm sure, he begins to hold on to wisdom and then says, my life's going to be about pleasure now, what I can accumulate, what I can get. Look with me in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who have been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not Keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Did you catch that last phrase? Once he had achieved whatever his eyes and heart desired, he said, I considered all, everything that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was Nothing to be gained under the sun. You've ever had an unmotivated Monday to go back to work? Well, this is that on steroids. The word translated vanity here, it's used almost 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone. The word is, let me give you another one this morning, hebel. Let's say it together. Hebel. Got two Hebrew words down today. And all my Jewish friends would go, whatever. It means breath or breeze. The preacher is saying that everything he gave his passion and attention to became to him like a breeze, like a mist, a vapor, a puff of wind, a bit of smoke. This speaks of the temporal nature of how fleeting things of this life are. When the preacher says this, it's basically just another way of saying, I got everything I wanted out of life. And as soon as I got it, it wasn't what I thought it was. The pleasure and satisfaction was short-lived and then it was gone. Friends, have you already experienced that misery so far? Have you experienced that? That sense of, well, that was vain. Maybe you've accomplished something that meant a lot to you, but now it's kind of a faint memory. I know for me, I recall getting trophies and medals and plaques on my sports teams growing up as a kid. They once stood in a glass case. You feeling me, Matt? Oh, yeah. I was a big fish in a small pond. I have nothing really to boast about. But for me, I was a Tom Brady of my childhood. But you know where those plaques, those trophies, and those medals are today? Well, I don't know. Some of them are lost. Some of them are thrown away. Some of them I've kept, and they're dent and scratched up. And honestly, I don't really think about them all that much anymore. Maybe you have some things like that that used to mean a lot to you, but you don't even know where they are anymore. Have you ever wanted something so bad that eventually you did get it, but then really afterwards you realized it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be? I mean, think about it. What did you get for Christmas five years ago that you really wanted so badly? 
Think back with me again. Think back on your birthday 25 years ago of what you begged your parents or your spouse to get you. Can you remember that? All right, if you can't remember it, do you still have it? Friends, by nature, we are creatures who are addicted to instant gratification. We tend to live only in the moment, and we think very little about future consequences. And friends, we should all be warned by that way of thinking. Proverbs is full of warnings about hasty decisions that we make with our lives. It, it warns us to, do what, to not do what's right in our own eyes, but instead seek wise counsel. Friends, I want to encourage you to jot down a few of these Proverbs as you consider your life this year. Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19, 2, desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Proverbs 22, verse 3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Brothers and sisters, this year, make it a goal to find two or three godly men and women that you can constantly go to for wise counsel. Men and women who love you, who care about you, who want what's best for you, and men and women who fear God. They actually point you to the Bible for answers, not your mere opinions, but to God's word. I mean, think about it for a moment. Why is that so important? Well, think about the biggest regrets you have in your life. Think of the biggest regrets with your life. Where do they come from? Why did they happen? It's probably because we made decisions in the past without thinking about the consequences of the future. Friends, that's because by nature, we don't have the fear of God in our hearts. Paul says the whole human race Romans 3.18 has no fear of God in their eyes. And you know what the consequences are? We don't think about the future with the decisions we're making in the present. Friends, apart from God's grace, we are consumer-driven pleasure addicts. We see, we crave, we get, and then it's gone. Friends, whether it's loving sin or loving good things in a sinful way, it always leaves us empty as soon as it's over. I mean, think about it. Every plastic toy, every pursuit of popularity, even relationships that we think will make us happy and whole, they're only going to be a heap of disappointment if you make them into something they were never made to be. You know, as a pastor... I see this played out in the church, and I'm not talking just our church kind of thing, any church I've ever been a part of, uh, with regards to dating and marriage. Uh, Christian singles, men and women who yearn to be married, sometimes think that marriage is going to fix all their problems. They think, if only I get married, I would be happy, never lonely, and fulfilled as a human being. I've also seen Christian singles, men and women, compromise and marry the wrong kind of person. They marry someone simply because they show them attention, or they make them feel good, 
but they totally ignore things like godly character and spiritual maturity. And they do this because they don't wait on the right person. They're impatient. They see, they want, and they want to have. But they don't consider the future consequences down the road. Members of CCBC, whether we're talking about dating and marriage or a plethora of other things in life, pray that we would be a church that has a culture of intentional discipling relationships. Intentional discipling relationships. That we would have friendships with one another, with Jesus at the center, where we're helping one another see that no person, no plastic toy, no pleasure can replace an abiding relationship with Jesus. Friends, we need each other for that. If not, we're going to be just like the preacher. I see, I want, I get, and then we're left empty. Because we lack the fear of God, we lack wisdom, and we need help in order to live the life God intended. As you read throughout this book, we can find ourselves in the preacher's shoes time and time again. Whatever his eyes and his heart desired, he went for, and it says it left him wanting. He's almost like the kid who has the unlimited credit card to spend at Christmas buying everything he sees on the shelves, but after just a few weeks, he's bored. And he's moved on to the next thing. It's kind of like the illustration of seeing a billboard. It says a million dollars can be found here. But as soon as you get there, it's Monopoly money in your hand. And that's what the preacher just says over and over and over again. He's realized the temporal things of this world can sparkle but they cannot deliver on what it promises. They cannot fulfill what the cravings and longings of our hearts yearn for. Friends, things aren't always what they appear to be, are they? Things aren't always what they appear to be. What we think will make us happy, it will make us whole. If it's pursued with an idolatrous type of way, it's only going to make us miserable and more broken in the end. You know, somewhere along the way, by running the rat race of outdoing the next person, or climbing up the corporate ladder, where dog eats dog is a virtue, somewhere along the way, our consciences are going to begin pricking us. The Lord is going to start getting our attention that there has got to be more to life than that. Those of you who are older and you've lived more than probably 50 to 60% of your life already, you already know this. You've already been there, done that, got the t-shirt. You see young people all the time making ridiculous choices with their lives, wearing themselves out, putting their family on the sacrificial altar, all for the sake of a dollar bill, a reputation, not realizing it's going to cost them immensely in the end. Friends, those of you who've lived life longer, you've seen U.S. presidents come and go. Sports stars at their peak and then die. Those who have even looked in the mirror and thought, whoa, who's that person? Where did all that youthful beauty go? Listen, if you've had those reality checks, 
you know what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is talking about. Whatever physical strength, whatever youthful beauty we have today will one day be taken from us. Whatever toys we accumulate in our garages and self-storage units will one day be in someone else's garage or dump. And look at every form of illicit and sexually immoral relationship that have been pursued by other people or even our own. What do you find that happens? I see someone I want. I'm going after them and I'm going to get them regardless of what God's word says. What do you have happen? Catastrophic cost. The cost of family, the cost of reputation, the cost of a seared conscience, and perhaps even worse, the cost of their own soul. When we look around at the statistics of people in enslaving debts, addiction to drugs, alcohol, and pornography, we see time and time again, even in our own hearts, we can have all the stuff that the world can give us and still be empty inside with the stuff in our hands. Beloved, amidst all our differences, we all can admit at some point in our lives we've experienced this. We've experienced the vanity of pursuing the things of this world as an end in and of themselves. We've all at some point have had to ask ourselves, is this it? I mean, if you're tracking with me, you're tracking with the preacher because that's exactly what this book's about. We totally understand what the preacher meant when he said there, the eye is never satisfied with seeing, Ecclesiastes 1.8. We totally understand what he meant when he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, Ecclesiastes 5.10. Friends, this dude had it all. Singers, women, servants, castles, plants, gardens, everything his eyes and heart wanted, he got it. And he said all was vanity and striving after the wind. Friends, look at Hollywood. Look at the rich and famous and scores of millionaires who have ever lived. Look at Super Bowl champions from 20 years ago. Look at supermodels from 40 years ago. Consider even the lust-driven man who built an empire on ungodly pleasure and exploiting women, Hugh Hefner. Where's he at today? He's dead, and he is giving an account for his life, for his maker. You see, pleasure seekers, what I see, what I want, I'm going to get, it's vanity. Striving after the wind. It's another way of just saying it's a waste of time. It's a vain pursuit. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes, it's bookended with this sobering, realistic, and some people might even say Ecclesiastes is one of the most pessimistic books in the Bible. Look back with me in Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes 1, I want you to Listen to the introduction again in verses 2 to 11. See if you can resonate, even with the Hebrew parallelism and poetry, with how life can sometimes feel like a humdrum, repetitious, 
dog chasing its tail kind of feel. Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, you might be sitting here. The vast majority of our church is somewhere between 30 and 65 years old. That means a great portion of our church is still in the prime of life. And I pray that in 10 years from now, uh, we will have a whole new generation of believers coming behind us. And some of you are tempted to say, ah, Ecclesiastes, it's for a bunch of old people that read the obituaries. You know, they go to Hardee's every day and just talk about the news. You know, that's just for those old fuddy-duddies. Young? No, I still got vigor. I got a whole world in front of me. Turn to the end of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 Reading in verse 9, and finish up at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. So you saw the introduction. Now we're landing back into the fourth quarter onto the landing pad. All right, if you're young in here, I'll let you determine if you think you're young. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man. Okay, wow, that sounds exciting. Rejoice, you're young. In your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Okay, I can do what my heart desires. Awesome. This book sounds better than the first half. Walk in the ways of your heart. Oh, man, yes. Get it, preacher. And the sight of your eyes. Oh, yeah, I'm really liking this book now. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Uh-oh. We're back to that again. It's that whole thinking about the future thing. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or what? Say it together. Youth and the dawn of life or what? Vanity. Look at chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. 
They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. One translation to help you feel the emotional intensity of what he sang, he's basically saying this, all is utterly absurd. All is absolutely futile. He's covered everything of the human experience, possessions, people, pleasure, even youth. It's all Vanity. Or is it? Is life simply a meaningless, unfulfilling, repetitious, doggy dog rat race of the survival of the fittest? Well, it can certainly be that if God isn't in the equation. You see, life in this fallen world without God should feel like that. If you try to live in this life apart from God, seeing life from his perspective, you will at some point come to the same conclusion that the preacher did. Friends, we will always have gaps in our understanding of purpose, gaps in our understanding of success, gaps in our understanding of satisfaction, unless we look to God who gave us these things. So what's the point of life then? What simplifies how we should view our vapor-like lives if God is in the equation? Well, here's what the end of Ecclesiastes taught us. We should fear God and allow his commandments to guide the direction of our lives until we stand before him in judgment. We should fear God and allow the commandments of his word to guide the direction of our lives until We stand before him in judgment. Simply put, fearing God simplifies life. Fearing God takes that colorful paintbrush and colors over so many of the gray and blah and vanity fair that this life really does feel like if God's not in it. But what does it mean to fear God? What does that mean? The word means to show reverence or awe. It is to surrender the human will from esteeming anyone or anything greater than God himself. Author Ed Welch defines it very simply this way. 
Fearing God is reverent submission that leads to obedience. Reverent submission that leads to obedience. Fearing God or the fear of the Lord is when our hearts are filled with the greatness of God. The bigness, the vastness, the glory, the greatness of God. So much that when we're making decisions in our lives, we will ask first, what will God think of this decision? Not, what are people going to think of me? Did you see that? When man is the point of our living, when we are the point of our living, we are big in our hearts and God is irrelevant. But fearing God in his greatness, we care most importantly what he thinks of this decision, not what other people are going to think. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Charles Bridges once described fearing God like this, it's that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. It's just another way of saying Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. Let me illustrate it this way. What is the fear of the Lord? What does it mean to fear God? Let me give you two ways to think of it. Imagine meeting someone who told you they had never seen a mountain in their whole life. You bought them a first-class plane ticket, put them on a plane, and blindfolded them. And you told them, you're not allowed to take that off until the plane lands and my Uber driver takes you where you're going to go. Again, he doesn't know where he's going. He gets off the plane, he's in an Uber, and he's driving, and he, f- he feels like the car is moving in some pretty wonky and weary ways. And he gets out of the car, and he's kind of panicking. He doesn't know where he's at. And then this friend rips off the blindfold, and he's standing at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. He's never seen a mountain before. All of a sudden, those mountains overwhelm him. It's the only thing he thinks about. Everything in life seems small and insignificant compared to this gigantic and beautiful and awe-inspiring mountain. Friends, that's what God does in our hearts when we get a glimpse of him. A glimpse of his goodness, a glimpse of his greatness, a glimpse of his sovereignty in this vain, repetitious, vanity fair, humdrum life What our hearts need is not more of this world. What our hearts need is more of this God. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, young people. Why? Because he is the point of your youth. He is the point of your midlife. He is the point of your older years. Friends, even our very work Colossians 3.23, whatever we do, do it with all our heart, fearing the Lord. Colossians 3.22 and 23. Why? Because I care what he thinks more than what other people will think. That's a picture of the fear of God and aweness of his greatness. 
But there's another aspect of the fear of the Lord. Imagine an orphan who had been abused. An orphan that doesn't even know how to hug an adult without feeling scared. And then a loving family takes that orphan in. Welcomes them to the table. Gives them their clothes, their money, their vacations. This orphan begins to know what a real family feels like for the first time. And as soon as that orphan is tempted to speak poorly of that family, he stops and says, I can't do that. This family's been too good to me. I don't want to ruin the family name. I don't want to disobey that mom and dad because they're good to me. Friends, that's the fear of God. It's when our hearts are so enamored with the greatness of God that I don't want to sin against him. He's been too good to me. I don't want to make God's name look bad because he's been too good to me. Friends, that's the fear of God. You see, the fear of God is to see God in his greatness and to obey him because of his goodness. The fear of God is to be in awe of his greatness and to trust and obey him because of his goodness. Friends, fear can take on so many different forms in our life. Fear that quenches the fear of God. Two of those are the fear of being exposed and the fear of man. Remember Adam in the garden? Sins against the Lord. We hear in Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. Friends, that's not the fear of God. That's the fear of getting caught. When you're counseling someone and they've been caught in their sin, here's how you know if it's true repentance. Is there a fear that they're being exposed and others will now think poorly of them? Or is there a fear I have sinned against a holy God? I have smeared his name in the mud. I have given a bad reputation for King Jesus. Friends, sin, rightly understood, is always vertical treason before it's a horizontal offense. If anyone ever comes to you and says, I regret this, I feel so bad, and all they're thinking about are the consequences of their sin, that's not the fear of God. That's the fear of getting caught. That's the fear of being exposed. That's Adam in the garden, hiding and afraid of a good God. Friends, if you are a child of God, you have nothing to be afraid of because you belong to him. But the fear of being exposed is not the same as the fear of God. Secondly, the fear of man. If there is anything that paralyzes us from truly fearing God, it's fearing man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a deceitful trap, like trying to take out an animal that a hunter has laid under the leaves. It's a snare. You might say, what's the fear of man? 
Very simply put, and I get this from Ed Welch. He's got a fascinating book on this topic. The fear of man is when people are big and God is small. The fear of man is when people are big and God is small. This can show up in people-pleasing. Perpetually, you rarely say no to anyone. You don't want to ever let anyone down because that's what drives you in your life. This could be a parent being ruled by their children, being afraid to tell them no, or a grown adult who is still afraid of disappointing their overbearing mother or father. Friends, those are just two of scores of examples of the fear of man. Friends, I know pastors who know what the Bible teaches on elders. They know what the Bible teaches on church discipline, and they don't practice it. They don't obey it. Do you know why? The fear of man. I care too much about what my colleagues will say. I care too much about the traditions of our church. Friends, if you care more about what other people think, more than what God's word says, that's called the fear of man. Don't call it anything else. The fear of man. Friends, the fear of man can take on so many different forms. But friends, it's, it's vanity. What does it matter? What slander? What obscene talk? What ridiculous garbage people put on the internet? What does it matter? What another church or another community or another neighbors are saying about you? It matters what God says. Because on the day of judgment, you ain't going to be holding nobody's hand. Twitter and Facebook will be nothing. Each one of us will give an account before God. And friends, if you're in Christ, it's a glorious day to give an account before a good master. But if you are not in Christ, that is a terrifying day to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, the good news is that you don't have to be afraid of this God in the wrong way. You don't have to be afraid of your heavenly Father, of finding your sin out. He already knows. And he's already shown his love for us by sending his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took on human flesh and lived in this humdrum, vanity fair world, but he lived the most fulfilled life a human being could ever live. He was always feeding upon, feasting upon his delightful relationship with his heavenly father. You see, Jesus didn't fear any man. Don't you ever believe some hocus-pocus nonsense that Jesus was afraid of the Romans? He wasn't afraid of centurions. He wasn't afraid of the Jews. He wasn't afraid of any man. The only one Jesus ever trembled before on this planet was before the Father. The cup in the Gethsemane was the cup of God's fierce wrath. And he drank that cup. And he stood on that cross. He hung in our place. He bore our penalty for the sins we have committed. And God raised him from the dead. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus, as Jeff read at the beginning, is the assurance that Jesus is coming back for his church and he's going to judge the world. So, Christian, the good news is In Christ, your condemnation has already been wiped away. There is no reason to ever fear being exposed. He already knows. 
He loves you, he's good to you, and he's promised to make you more like Jesus. That's why one of the best ways you can get over the fear of man is with your own church members. Here's one practical way. Confess sin in your life to another brother and sister. Get over yourself. Stop thinking you're more godly than you are. I, as a pastor, I, as a preacher, walk in this daily rhythms of my life going, I'm just like everybody else in this church. Temptations, accusations, trials, doubts, sleepless nights, yada, 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 yada. I live in the vanity fair of this life just like you. I need grace like you. I need accountability like you. I need God's word like you. Friends, nobody's exempt from this. So one of the best ways that we can just smash the fear of man together is get over our pride and ask for prayer. Get over our pride and ask for accountability. Get over our pride, invite people into our life, and help us follow Jesus together. And friends, if you're not a Christian here today, if you haven't experienced the vanity of this life yet, you're either too young or you're too numb. Keep living. All is vanity will come. But it doesn't have to stay there. You can know the God who made you. Trust in Jesus Christ. He gives life and life abundantly. You see, in Christ, we find our purpose is in him. In Christ, we find our success and our definition of success is faithfulness to him. In Christ, we find that satisfaction first comes from knowing him. Friends, I don't know where you're at in your life today when it comes to the realities of thinking about the future. But Ecclesiastes is helping us have a little more tunnel vision to our faith. We do a little too much rubbernecking, don't we? We rubberneck on the internet. We rubberneck what people are thinking. Stop. Who cares? Two days. The day you're going to die and the day you're going to stand before God in judgment. That should stay on your mind. And Christian... If those two things are on your mind, fearing God, keeping his commandments, knowing you're going to stand before him to give an account for your life, that will simplify a lot of our anxieties. And that will also help us prevent a lot of foolish decisions with the rest of our lives. Friends, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about, well, then what about enjoying life? I see that it's full of vanity, but with God, there's meaning and purpose. And I get the day of judgment, but what about now? Are Christians like killjoy people, you know, fuddy-duddies? David Gibson says this, if you get fearing God right, you actually can enjoy life the way God intended it. He says this, far from being something that makes life in the present completely pointless, future death is a light God shines on the present to change it. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life. By relativizing all that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from being people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. This is the main message of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. Imagine spending the rest of your life seeing life through that lens. Life in God's world is not about gain. It's about, it's a gift. 
It's a gift. What does the testimony of a person sound like who's fearing God, who's keeping his commandments, who sees life as a gift to be enjoyed? Yesterday on Twitter, a pastor named Matthew Boswell posted a description of his grandpa. It was his grandpa's birthday. This is what he said. Thankful to celebrate my grandpa Boswell's 87th birthday this week. Husband, father, missionary, pastor, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Does that describe the direction of your life today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us a book like Ecclesiastes book that's very realistic about the temporal nature of this life and the vanity it is of life apart from you. Lord, I do pray that it would cause each one of us to pick up this book and read it again and be reminded afresh about ways that we are seeking after merely things that are just going to rot, that we're concerned and we care about people's opinions more than yours. Oh, Father, to fear you is the beginning of knowledge. To fear you is to be all of your greatness. To fear you is to obey you because you're good to us. Lord, I pray that you would grant us an increased fear of you in a way that each one of us would have the testimony like that grandpa. A long life, a long path of obedience unto you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.